The season of Lent is a season of reflection and repentance. It's the 40 days, not including Sundays, that lead up to Easter. And these 40 days mirror Jesus' 40 days fasting in the wilderness, so it's common practice for people to fast during Lent. Many people who observe the season try to omit something for 40 days, or they try to add something in for 40 days. In my church growing up, we never celebrated Lent. We never observed this season, and I didn't know about it until I was a freshman in high school. And the boy I was dating at the time asked me what I was giving up for Lent. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, what are you giving up for Lent? I'm giving up condiments. (laughs) And I'm embarrassed to admit to you that at the time, I was not familiar with the term condiments either. So it was a very educational conversation that I got to have with him that day. I've since come to appreciate the season of Lent as a season of preparation before this great and glorious day of Easter. It begins with Ash Wednesday, where we mark a cross and ashes on our forehead, which is a callback to the sackcloth and ashes that people in in the ancient Near Eastern communities would put on, usually in times of mourning or grief, but also in times of repentance, which is what this season is really about. Now, typically when we hear the word repentance, we often hear it through the lens of moralism. We hear repent and we think, do away with those dirty sins, change your life, get right with God, clean yourself up, repent. Rich Velotis is a pastor in New York City and he points out that this kind of idea around repentance lacks the grace and blessing that repentance actually is. When Jesus preached repentance, it was because the kingdom of God had come near Because the kingdom of heaven was among us, repentance is about joyfully and intentionally adjusting our lives to that reality, to the reality of a God who has come close to us. Repentance is about joyfully and intentionally adjusting our lives to the reality that God has come close to us. Or you could say that God is always present and at work. But the ashes also represent our human, fa- our human frailty. They remind us that we came from dust and to dust we shall return. That our humanity is fragile, that our bodies are fleeting. We are the created, not the creator. And as such, we have limitations. We falter, we fail, we fall short. The season of Lent helps us to acknowledge our humanity and our brokenness. I once heard of a guy who grew up in a kind of an evangelical Pentecostal tradition, and like me, he did not know what Ash Wednesday was either. Um, when he was an adult, he was at lunch, on his lunch break one day during Ash Wednesday, and he looks up and he sees people all around him who have this black smudge. And his memory of the Left Behind series kicked in, and he thought it was the mark of the beast from Revelation. He spent the rest of his lunch hour convinced that the world was about to end until he went back to his office and told someone, and they were like, dude, it's just Ash Wednesday. You can calm down. (laughs) Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent remind us of our frailty and our brokenness, but not for the purpose of guilt, not for the goal of us feeling shame or condemnation for everything we've done or everything we haven't done. In fact, I've heard people associate the season of Lent as the time that we acknowledge that we are stained by sin, utterly and completely depraved, that there's nothing good in us, so we come before God groveling like the despicable creatures that we are. And that breaks my heart. 
I think it's a complete misunderstanding, not only of the season of Lent, but also of the concept of sin and our understanding of God. So we're going to spend the next six weeks rethinking sin, what it means, how it happens, if it's really as much fun as the non-Christians tell us it is. Just kidding about that last part. We're going to rethink our understanding of God's response to sin and God's response to us as the ones who sin. And some of the things we talk about in the next six weeks might be old hat. They might be things that we've already heard, that we already know. Some of it might be new. Some of it might spark questions or even disagreements. And I think that's great because it means that we're all thinking about this with intention. Of course, if I start getting a bunch of angry emails, I'm probably not going to think it's as great as I think it is right now. But my hope in the end is that it will help us live deeper into the truth of the gospel of Jesus to who he is to all of us. So we're starting today with the concept of original sin. And if, you li- if you're like me, when you hear that phrase, original sin, you think of Adam and Eve clad in their little fig tree loincloths holding, you know, a half-eaten apple. And you see a serpent, sliver- a, a serpent slithering away in the distance. The doctrine of original sin says that when Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden, sin and death entered this world. And it made all the rest of us sinful from the moment that we're born to. It gives all of us a sin nature, a predisposition and an inclination towards sin that characterizes our lives from their very inception. But it might surprise you to know that some scholars and theologians don't actually think that there's solid biblical evidence for this idea. It's never explicitly mentioned in scripture, and there are only a few places that could potentially draw a connection, but a deep reading of scripture opens up other possibilities as well. This idea of original sin didn't come around until about 500 years after the death of Jesus, and it's not something that our Jewish forebears espoused. So like, the disciples probably didn't believe in this. But over the years, it has been solidified in Christianity as this irrefutable fact Gospel truth, some might say. The doctrine of original sin says that we all start off on the same footing. We're all born into sin. We all have the same depravity about us. And this is why we're all in need of a savior. Some people describe it like we all start school in detention. We're all on equal footing, but not because we all made the dean's list. They say that original sin is the problem at the heart of our humanity. It's the capital S sin, the sin that's so much bigger than all of our little individual lowercase s sins, the sin that is separation, that we are born in this separation and only through Jesus are we able to be connected with God again, that Jesus died to save us from the separation, from the original sin, and that's why we needed a savior. Is this concept familiar to you? Yeah, me too. (laughs) For some of us. (laughs) I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that this is not true. But I am going to stand up here and say that I'm beginning to ask some questions about it. I'm beginning to wonder about it and to rethink it. And I'm so grateful that I'm in a church where I can say stuff like that out loud. One of the things that I appreciate about Dayspring is that we are what's called a theologically progressive people. It's a group of people who are willing to think deeply and to consider new alternatives. We believe in God's ongoing revelation, 
That the fullness of God came in Jesus Christ, yes, but that God is continuing through the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal new things to us every day, to help us understand things in a new way, to see things in new ways. As science progresses, as culture and societies progress, our understanding of God progresses too, and God comes along with us in that. And in this vein, the past few decades have brought quite a bit of scientific progress, especially from a neurological perspective. Did you know that we have learned that we all, all of our choices and decisions create pathways in our brain called neural pathways? And when we make the same decision, the same choice over and over and over, that pathway gets deeper and deeper and deeper. But science has shown recently that this is not fixed. These pathways are not for certain. We can still make other choices. The deeper the pathway, the harder it is. But it is possible for us to choose something different, for us to develop new neural pathways. Social science describes this as a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And it was never more evident than in a study done with fifth grade students back in 2013. Researchers conducted a series of experiments with fifth graders where some students were praised for their intelligence and their abilities, and others were praised for their effort for their progress, their perseverance. Researchers found that students behaved very differently depending on the type of praise that they received. Those kids who were praised for their intelligence, you're so smart, I knew you could do it, you're so good at that. Those students tended to avoid challenges. They only wanted easy tasks. They were also more interested in comparing themselves to other students to understand where they stood more than they were in learning how to improve for the future. On the other hand, the kids who were praised for their effort, for their perseverance, you worked so hard on that. You never gave up. You kept on trying. Those kids showed the opposite trend. They preferred tasks that were challenging, and they would learn from those tasks. They were more interested in learning new skills and strategies that would help them succeed in the future. And they also found that the students who were praised, that, that compared to the students who were praised for their effort, the ones who were praised for their intelligence or their abilities were more likely to give up after failure. They were more likely to perform poorly after failure. And they were more likely to see failure as evidence of their low intelligence. So it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. I failed because I'm stupid, and because I'm stupid, I keep failing. The implications of these findings in the study have been far-reaching and have continued to impact and even revolutionize various fields from education to psychology, nutrition, medicine, and today, I think, theology as well. Because on the other side of this doctrine of original sin is the doctrine of what's called original blessing. Rather than original sin being the thing that unites us as humans, rather than sin being the thing that starts us all off in the same detention class, that starts us all off separated from our creator, they say that the uniting force of humanity is not sin, but blessing. That when God created humanity and the world, God blessed it and called it good, called it very good. And that was our bestowed blessing at our outset, at our very beginning, the beginnings of all created things. We were blessed as good to be good and to do good. 
So Adam and Eve ate that fruit, which, yes, is indeed sin, but the doctrine of original blessing would say it did not cause a curse upon all humanity for all time from that point going forward. In fact, if we kept reading today past the verses that J.R. so greatly read for us, thank you for that, by the way, J.R., if we kept reading past those verses, we would see that God does dish out some curses as a result of the sin, but God did not curse humans. God cursed the serpent. God cursed the ground, but God did not curse people. That original blessing that God gave them was still intact. God did not undo it as a result of sin. And that's because we have an incredibly faithful, loving God. Now, this doctrine of original blessing, it's complex and there's a lot we could discuss about it, but one of the things I appreciate about it is that it seems to have a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. Original sin says we're bad because we're born bad and we will never be anything but bad. How many times have people justified their bad behavior with, well, I'm only human. I mean, we're all going to sin. How many times have I done that personally? And if there's nothing we can do about this, so we might as well just live into it like our own self-fulfilling prophecy. But in fact, when people do something really wrong, really evil, really bad. We don't say that's their human nature. In fact, we say it's inhuman. We talk about the inhumanity of that act. We talk about how inhumane that treatment is. Because at the outset, well before the doctrine of original sin, there was original blessing. Humanity created to be good and do good, created as good. And God never took that blessing away from us. So people have taken this story from Genesis 3 and this idea of original blessing, I mean original sin, sorry, and they have made it the hallmark of our gospel, that our good news of Jesus begins with the total and complete depravity and separation of humanity. But what if there's a different place to begin? What if our story has a different beginning? What if our good news begins with a blessing What if sin, which is very real, and we are going to continue to discuss it over the next six weeks, but what if sin wasn't the first detail of our story, wasn't the focal point of our story? Instead of sin being the unifying factor for all of humanity, what if it was blessing instead? What if it was goodness and God's love and God's blessing? Doesn't that sound like good news? We are still all on equal footing. We all still all start the same place, but it's because of God's blessing as opposed to sin. So then our choice as humans is how deeply we choose to live into this reality, to live into that blessing. How much we choose to allow God's blessing to impact and influence the way we live our lives. If we ascribe to the doctrine of original blessing then our choice as humans is how deeply we choose to let that be true. How much we allow God's blessing to impact and influence the way we live our lives. Remember our earlier definition of repentance? Joyfully and intentionally adjusting our lives to the reality that God has come close to us? Repentance insists on a growth mindset, not a fixed one. 
a growth mindset that says, I can adjust my life to the reality that God has come close. The fact that God has come close to us means something and matters and makes a difference in how I live. I can learn or choose to live my life in response to the love of God, in response to the blessing of God. So repentance says that I can choose to listen to who God says I am and not who anybody else says I am. Repentance says that I can choose to live in generosity. I can choose to live in kindness. I can choose to live in encouragement of others because I know that I have been blessed and I want to share that blessing with the world and remind them that they are blessed too. Repentance says I can honor the dignity and the humanity of those who I don't agree with, who I don't understand, even those who I don't like that much because I know that they too have received original blessing. I can recognize that every human on the planet, regardless of race or citizenship status or gender identity or sexual orientation or the car they drive or the job they have or the church they go to or don't, have all been imbued with the blessing of God. I know that they are blessed. It changes my life and I can know that God loves them and blesses them too. Remembering our original blessing has us coming to Jesus not because we are the most despicable creatures on the planet, but because we are God's good and beloved creatures, so we want more of that relationship. It has us coming to Jesus not because we fear the wrath of God, but because we know that Jesus is the only one who can lead us into abundant life, and we want the abundant life that Jesus can give us. No matter where we land on the doctrine of original sin, and I told you I'm still up in the air about it, no matter where we land on that, let's remember that we are all creatures who have been given original blessing, blessed by God as good. And this Lenten season, let's choose to adjust our lives in response to that reality.